0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.tv, University of California Television. Like what you learn, help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes.
1: Thank you for joining us for the second panel, uh, part of the Future Thought Leaders program that's put on by the foundation, a local foundation, the Very Good Food Foundation. And today we're going to be talking about meaty issues. Um, before I introduce this illustrious panel that we've assembled, I want to really give some thanks to the people who helped make today possible, and that includes specialty produce, Isabel's Cantina. Uh, Isabel and her team of volunteers prepared all of the food that you had outside today. Uh, that includes Dr. Bronner's for the swag. I'm, I'm always happy when there's swag. OK. <laughs> Taj Farms for some of the cheeses and meats that we have, Julian Hard Cider, and Pow Wow. Uh, They are the ones who set up this beautiful stage here. Our volunteers also included Bernadette Chaplin Nieto, William Creek Moore, Isabel, of course, who was in charge, Julie Guzman, Sharon Heith, Michelle Kveth, Barbara Newton-Holmes, Calissa Wells, who was her Sergeant at Arms, and Marianne Zappella. So thank you, all of you, so much for all of this. we're here to talk about meaty issues, meat as friend or foe. And we're going to look at that from a number of perspectives, from an environmental perspective, a human health perspective, animal welfare perspective, and finally we're going to add a twist of technology and see if it has any of the answers to these uh, questions we all have. Let me introduce my panel from right to left. On my far right is Dr. Richard Oppenlander. He is the founder and president of Inspire Awareness Now. I see you have some fans in the room. Uh, he's the author of Food Choice and Sustainability and Comfortably Unaware. And I think as many of you know, he was featured in the documentary Cowspiracy. Next is Carrie Hammerschlag, who is, Carrie, excuse me, Carrie Hammerschlag, who's the deputy director of Friends of the Earth. She's the author of The Meat Eater's Guide to Climate Change and Health. And she's a contributing author to Food Tank and Civil Eats, among others. Next is David Bronner, a man who probably needs no introduction in this neighborhood. <laughs> he is the cosmic engagement officer of Dr. Bronner's Magic Soaps. He's an activist. He's a regenitarian. Did I get that right? I did. And he also has a, a biology degree from Harvard, which I always find terribly impressive. On my immediate right, that was my husband laughing. Thank you, Bill. <laughs> He's a plant in the front. Okay. Uh, (laughs) My immediate right is Kirvin Bush. She's the executive vice president of Certified Nutrition Specialist, board member of the American College of Nutrition, and a contributing author to obesity, epidemiology, pathophysiology, and prevention. I'm glad I said that. On my left is the lovely Leslie Durso, a, ve- a celebrity vegan chef. Let's No lie about that. Healthy living educator and author and media personality. Thank you for coming. <laughs> Next is Dr. Uma Valetti. He is a cardiologist by training, but he's also the co-founder and CEO of Memphis Meats. And you'll hear what they do a little bit later. And also was an early board member of New Harvest. Next is my good friend, Jack Ford. He's the owner of Taj Farms in Valley Center. He's a farmer, rancher, cheese maker. In fact, he and his students are the ones responsible for the cheese that was available outside today. Food activist, and he's our main instructor with the Very Good Food Academy. <laughs> Next, we have Dr. Kara Wentworth. Kara became a doctor just this week. Congratulations. <laughs> She's here at UCSD, uh, focused on the politics of food and inequality in the United States. She's an anthropologist, uh, documenting small slaughterhouses, researcher, urban soil testing, and agriculture. So thank you. And finally, at the very end, we have Dr. Aaron Gross, who's the founder and CEO of Farm Forward. He's an associate professor of theology at the University of San Diego, and the author of The Question of the Animal and Religion, Theoretical Stakes, Practical Implications. And I... (laughs) And my name is Michelle Arac. I'm the founder of the Berry Good Food Foundation. And what we try to do is put out information for the community at multiple levels at the intersection of food and the environment. So thank you again for coming. Thank you, Scripps. I've uh, I've just learned that we are the very last non-profit who will have access to this lovely forum that isn't a production or a musical So we might have to put on some musical or some theater here <laughs> if we want to come back again So thank you to our venue and now let's get into the media issues Oh, we'll be taking questions today via Twitter Hopefully you're all on the Wi-Fi Hashtag is up there Yes, media issues Uh, We'll be following them here, and we'll take your questions. I won't necessarily take them immediately. We'll weave them into the conversation as it happens. And what we're going to do is probably take this conversation in four sections. We'll start uh, really focusing on environmental issues. And I know it sounds like from the applause that you received, Richard, that maybe there are a lot of people focused on that issue. Then we'll talk about human health. Then we'll talk about animal welfare. And then we'll end on technology Um, and also hopefully with some guidance about what you as individuals can do and or yourselves uh, or in your community uh, to to move this issue forward. So I want to start with um, the big issue, you know, meat or no meat. What kind of meat? Is meat good or bad for the environment, Richard? That's the biggest softball question I could ever imagine for you.
2: Meat, uh, first of all, I think we need to look at definitions and uh, start right off with that. So meat for me includes uh, the, uh, what everybody uh, thinks is meat, which is the red beef, red meat industry, but it's also dairy and it's also the fishing industries. And I don't think we really can separate those very easily. It's, it's all those animal products, I think, that are found on our plates. And in general, uh, we, uh, we're in overshoot mode with our planet. We all know that. And the single the single factor most responsible for that is not energy and it's not fossil fuel use. It's because of the uh, food we eat and principally and specifically the largest ecological footprint we have is from our uh, desire or demand to eat animal products from the meat, dairy, and fishing industries. And although other industries contribute to that uh, they have the largest impact. So for me uh, knowing that uh, and knowing that there are very specific timelines that are quite recognized by a number of reputable organizations now uh, that we're on and we are already exceeding tipping points. And we're we're already Explain in a state of irreversible. In case sure. everyone doesn't Sure. Uh, tipping points are can also be called planetary boundaries. Those the core the core life systems that support all life on Earth. And and we are already we've already surpassed four four recognized ones and I believe there are five that we've actually passed. We've surpassed them. So meaning they're likely irreversible in our lifetime. And, and again, if the leading culprit is from our ecological footprint from the meat, dairy, and fishing industries, I believe that uh, we should look at a very quick, a hasty retreat out of those into plant-based systems, which are environmentally much more sound and more efficient. So the summary for me is that, is that uh, because we're on various timelines, uh, very recognized timelines, and we've surpassed various planetary boundaries, at least four or five, in my opinion, that we need to turn this around as quickly as possible rather than... So my message is that we have to start looking outside of self, which I, th- I think uh, we need to look at future generations and generations of all species that inhabit the earth with us. And the quickest and easiest way that we can do that is by, is by changing to an uh, uh, organically grown, whole food, plant-based diet may seem difficult for people, but I did it, and I'm nothing special. So there you go. That's my summary.
1: Thank you. I'm, I'm sure that some of the other panelists will have a response. Kari, what about you?
3: Well, I think Richard's absolutely right. We um, meat in this country. We all consume, not necessarily myself, but on average, three times more than the rest of the world. Um, it's terribly unsustainable for our health and for the environment. Um, talking about water in California, which is a really precious resource that we are struggling with. Um, animal agriculture uses a quarter of all the irrigated water in California, and about half of that goes to dairy cows. And some of that gets exported to China. And yet we don't talk about the need to reduce our animal food consumption to address the water issue. So, like if you got to eat, um, people will ask you, you know, can you have a glass? Do, do you want a glass of water? Uh, because they're trying to conserve water, right? But if you order a steak, that's 7,000 glasses of water. So we're just not, we're not really addressing one of the core issues that we need to address if we're talking about water. And, And this is really our kids' future. So there's no doubt about it that we have to reduce the amount of animal foods we consume. And if we don't reduce the amount of animal foods, then we're really stealing the resources from our kids' future. And It's urgent, Um, and um, luckily there's things everybody can do. Everybody can reduce the amount of uh, animal foods that you are eating, and I think the difference uh, maybe between us is that I don't necessarily believe that it's realistic for everyone to go vegan tomorrow. Um, I think that there's a much greater impact if if everyone in this room said, you know, I'll eat." pledge to reduce my meat consumption or animal food consumption, but I I think we'll we'll get further if we can just encourage everyone to do that, and um, I'd love to talk more about solutions and things that people can do, but we'll come back to that. Yes.
1: What about you, David? I know you have an interesting take on the issue of, you know, to eat or not to eat meat, so what's your take on that?
4: Sure, and to clarify, I am vegan, but the regenitarian is a term that uh, I've termed, and and it kind of applies to vegan, omnivores, and vegetarian, and Basically, it means, like, whichever dietary choice you pick, that you're, you're, you, have a, you have a pitchfork and a knife, you know, a butchering knife, in your, when you're eating food. And it's like, what kind of farms, what kind of world are you supporting? And, and when you just default, oh, I'm just going to eat the, you know, factory farm steak. I mean, that's a disaster. And to Kari's point, I mean, I, I, mean, I think vegan is, you know, the most sustainable and, you know, correct role. And that's, you know, my personal choice. But I also very much respect the permaculture model of agriculture where animals are integrated uh, in a way that's sustainable. They're, the meat and the milk is almost a co-product of them you know, providing insect control and weeding and fertilization. And it's not, you know, they're not competing with primary grain crops. Like the, the water footprint, and the carbon footprint really comes when we're force feeding monoculture grain to animals in cages. And if you know, we need to let the animals out of their cages. They need to be integrated into, our, into mixed organic farms. People need to eat a much lower level, and, and, and the type of meat and milk and dairies and, and eggs is crucial. Is it from a grass-fed operation or grain-fed? I mean, grass-fed is much more sustainable. I mean, it's like, you know, the, the, the vegan utopias, it's all rewilded with wild herbivores and predators. I mean, but, you know, if, if, if it's a grass-fed cow being grazed in a, in a way that duplicates that kind of wild, um, wild uh, reality... It has the same environmental impact, and it's very low, and that's it. So people just have to be much lower, generally just, you know, ruminants, grass-fed, much less the, you know, and, and even the omnivores, I mean, there is an argument that there's some amount of default food waste, grain waste, food waste that, you know, can be converted in animal protein. So there's an argument, there's like a low-level default meat that actually does add to the world's food supply without competing with primary vegetable crops. Same thing with fishing, there is... A, you know, a, a default level that is not overfishing ocean and of course there's fishing in pastoral communities that you know, depend on this protein source um, but it definitely has to be w- much much lower to be sustainable
1: It sounds like uh, all cows aren't, are not necessarily equal yeah. in this uh, analysis. I, I saw your head shaking a little bit over there Richard I know you want to respond. What do you got well, to say? Well I won't take
2: too much time about that <laughs> but, but, uh, but when we look at the word sustainable I think we need to redefine that especially in lieu of the fact that we're going to be reaching – we're about 7.4 million, billion people right now. We're going to be increasing that population by 240,000 a day to about 9.6 billion by the year 2050, with the, with the demand for meat and dairy to double by that time. So I look at the big picture of all land use and water use and resource efficiencies. So in fact, grass-fed livestock are, in many ways are not as sustainable as grain-fed. I don't, I don't believe that any type of... Uh, so so looking, at, looking at the word sustainable, I like to define it as being... Op- because, of, because of these timelines we're on and because of the fact that we have this population issue of humans uh, and because of all of the facts, factors involved with all of the aspects of our unsustainability, meaning all those aspects of global uh, depletion, that we have to start looking at redefining the word sustainable. So, for instance, I like to term it as optimal or optimal relative sustainable, sustainability. You know, how can we best use our resources under these, under these, these given factors of our civil the effect it's going to have on our civilization? How can we, you know, use our water in the most effective way? How can we use our land in the most effective way? What will give, uh, give us the, the uh, highest amount of human health? What will actually mitigate greenhouse gases versus emitting them? Well, that model is not grass-fed livestock. Because in many ways, uh, it's less sustainable uh, in terms of water use, green, water, blue, gray combined, rather than just blue aquifer. It's also uh, less sustainable in terms of land use efficiency itself, like what you produce 40, 50 pounds on average to maybe up to 400 per acre versus 40,000 pounds for a plant-based product. It's less sustainable because of methane, it's 60 to 70 percent more methane at, at the at an average, you know, out of all the statistics that are out there. So that's all I'd like to say is that I, don't, I think that, you know, we're not really on the even, you know, unless we we want to recreate or reshape the word sustainable, I think, to redefine it to what is what under these conditions, what is optimally sustainable. And I think then we can... So,
1: so you would say, you agree that not all cows are equal, but you think the grass-fed, if anything, is worse in terms of the environment. But I so, want to talk to you about... Yeah, in different, you know, zones, rainforest versus agroforests versus uh, grasslands. Uh, What do you think about that, Kari?
3: Well, I mean, I think the thing with agriculture is so much depends on the actual management systems that you use. It depends on how the food was raised. And not one grass-fed cow is equal to another, actually, and not one grain-fed operation is necessarily equal to another. It really depends. But... Um, by and large, in this country, 150 million acres of our land is planted in corn and soy for animals. That, those plantings are not sustainable. They're not efficient. They use massive amounts of um, herbicides and pesticides, um, 17 billion pounds of fertilizer, um, huge amount of pesticides... 167 million pounds of pesticides. Well, all that, those, that fertilizer turns into nitrous oxide emissions, which have 300 times the global warming potential of carbon dioxide. It also um, creates lots of pollution in the water. And, and all those chemicals, guess where they end up? Well, they end up in the animals and they end up in us, in our bodies. Um, and on top of that, to, to grow a lot of the feed that you were saying is more sustainable, they're... they're, um, they're they're plowing the native prairie lands in our country. These are kind of our rainforests, and they're releasing huge amounts of carbon. They're destroying tons of biodiversity habitat for butterflies, for bees. Um, and when all the pesticides are sprayed, that also hurts the bees You've heard about the huge decline in bees and butterflies as well because they're using GMO. What should seeds? happen on those grasslands? Okay, so, on, on, on the 150 million acres that we're using right now to regenerate that land to make it more sustainable, we can put animals on there, growing them with the, with the crops, the integrated crop management, integrated crop livestock systems, which are far more sustainable in my mind. Um, I, don't, I don't think uh, the, other, the other piece about the sustainable. Is there additional water. Green, wa- it's only green water or is it blue water? So, so you the these terms. So here's the here's the thing about green water is rain water. Here's blue the water is irrigation right. water. So Sorry. here's here's the big big difference between um, growing corn in the Midwest, which is you know our water, the Ogallala Aquifer, is running dry in some places. It's going to be gone some of it in thirty years. Um, when you put animals on pasture land in the right places, they can convert the they can get grass. They get the water from the from the, the natural water, rain, which Helps to you know grow the grass. We don't need to to draw water from the aquifers for that rain in the right places. And then on top of that, um, you don't you don't need to. You're, you're converting grass, which is not edible for humans, you're converting that into food for humans. So, I'm not saying we, we need to massively reduce the amount of of, uh, of animals on that we're that we're farming. So we for, both agree yeah, that quick. we need to eat
1: less. Yeah, yeah just and we s- both and you agree that. Uh, not all cows are created equal, but you I agree have with that. But I'm not a proponent of no, factory
2: okay. farming. Mean, oh, I know that. I, mean, that, that's, I, mean, I know that. And and, and, and we, Everyone knows and the we word. need to look at efficiencies. If you're looking at models, you need to look at grass fed, grain fed, and then plants in terms of water use. It was what she was talking about. There's also feed, feed conversion ratios, and there's also land use. There's also how many pounds of whatever product you get that you might call but food. what it, she
1: said that this land would otherwise then be converted to grow crops, which is also which is what would happen, quite frankly, what would the grasslands do otherwise if we're not going to permit you know, cattle to graze on them? That's are we the going point. to plant them?
2: Well, that's the whole point. The efficiencies are so much greater. I mean, you're talking about how much land you'd actually have to use for plant-based foods is, is a fraction of what you'd use for. Uh, in fact, it could be up to between 20 and 100 times less for uh, plant-based foods versus uh, grain-fed.
4: So you or would or advocate grass-fed.
1: planting on... Sorry, go ahead. No, yeah, to
2: I, about the
4: historic. Historic. I, I, I think... Yeah, okay. I think that, I mean, first of all, grain-fed versus grass-fed is like there's no comparison. Okay, look, I mean, the cowspiracy numbers, it's all about the acre-feet of water on the feed, right? I mean, a cow running around on grass drinking water from the, you know, on the land, I mean, that's, you know, like in the vegan utopia, it'd be wild herbivores doing the same thing. There's, it's a wash on, on, the, on the impact. Right? It's the grain. It's like blast, it's, it's, it's putting four acre feet of water on corn and then the inefficient grain conversion ratio. So you're taking seven pounds of corn to make one pound of beef protein on a feedlot. So you're magnifying all the things bad about our monoculture, GMO, carbon and water intensive grain growing by X factor. So grass has none of that. And if there's not, you know, cattle, then it's going to be, you know, bison. I mean, we want, we want large ruminants interacting with our grasslands doing their thing. And whether or not it's a domesticated animal managed according like they would in the wild or true wild animals, it's an environmental watch. I think
2: we got off on the wrong track because no, it's it's just because I I think we shouldn't be we shouldn't be comparing, and we can if you'd like to. But I I think we got off the track of. I mean, we're looking at um, resource use efficiencies, and I'm just saying that the argument, yeah, the argument is that I'm hearing is that grass-fed beef especially, is more sustainable than uh, grain-fed in certain, and, environments. In certain areas. On and, and I'd like to bypass that and just say that if you're comparing uh, um, all, all across the board all resource use efficiencies, including, uh, including producing greenhouse, anthropogenic greenhouse gases versus mitigating them, and you, then you'd, you'd have to say that in, in, a, in no way is grass-fed livestock more sustainable than plants. For, for because human, as you said a, that it,
1: there's a higher emission rate. Well,
2: of it. it's across the board. It's, it's, oh. it's mitigating greenhouse gases versus producing them. It's but what about, wait about mitigation? Ratio. Because
1: what yeah, about no. the soil regeneration no, I and, think, and therefore I mean, I increased think carbon absolutely. sequestration? Yeah. Yeah. About that. Well, issue.
2: first look at efficiencies. First look at efficiencies.
4: I think wait. what Michelle wants to get at is that okay that, that like the grasslands are they have the richest topsoil in the world, right? And how did that rich topsoil you know evolve? And it's ruminants, like, you know, just massive herds of ruminants with their methane and everything else. Like, you know, you, know, mil- you know, tens of millions of animals interacting with the grasslands, you know, eating the grass and interacting in a way that, you know, sh- like the carbon builds in the soil in the grassland, like the huge, very rich carbon topsoil. Like, you know, just huge amounts of carbon, which through mismanaged grazing and mismanaged farmland, you know, is all up in the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So if we can correct and do regenerative grazing practices that mimics what happened in the wild that made that topsoil in the first place, Right, and we do. So, so that, we can we can draw down that excess carbon and put it back you. in the soil. And then can I'm going to take Chris and, and We're going to ask about so, her in right.
3: her opinion about the difference so, between. So the I just want to agree in general with the concept that's really important. And maybe I don't know if the chart is up there showing kind of the different greenhouse gas emissions of different kinds of products, but there's no doubt about it when you look from a water standpoint or you look from a greenhouse gas emission standpoint. Across the board, veggie proteins like lentils and beans are just going to be so much better for the environment, and they're better for your health in many in many respects. And so, but the idea is that um, it's about 29 times more um, more greenhouse gas, um, there's more, 29 times more greenhouse gas emissions coming from beef than there is from lentils. So that's the point is that from an efficiency standpoint, but you have to look at the whole system and you have to look at what we're eating. And so the point is that we want people to be, as they shift their diets from heavy meat to less meat, we want folks to choose better meat that is actually supporting... Um, and what you want to want to do is start shifting uh, to less meat, but also to better meat. Uh, and so, if you're going to pick, if you're going to, if you're going to eat animal foods, eat eat animal foods that come from organic pasture-based systems, where you are having lots of benefits for biodiversity, for the pollinators, for the soil, for carbon, you know, drawing carbon from the, from the atmosphere. That's what we're talking about. So well, that's what I wanted to ask. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. It. Okay.
4: But again, I mean, it's hard. I mean, yeah. Like, there's two different kinds of of ruminant meat, right? I mean, there's this, which is grain-fed. Factory-farming farming. Factory grain-fed is a disaster. It's horrible. It's the worst possible thing to be eating, right? But, Who like, doesn't agree that factory yeah,
1: farming is bad? <laughs> yeah,
4: no, I mean, it, and it, it, but... I don't know. But, like, if... And look, I'm vegan. I don't eat. I think we should have rewilded the, the, the environment and have wild ruminants doing their thing. But, you know, domesticated ruminants can do the same thing as far as it can have this very similar, envir- very low environmental... We
1: funding. don't have any wild ruminants left, yeah. not well, enough to do that five in this second, country. A, a five-second summary,
2: though. I'd like everybody to be thinking through this, no matter what. Anybody, uh, whatever the comment is through the entire uh, panel discussion is, we're on timelines. We have, we've already surpassed uh, four, I believe, five of the tipping points or planetary boundaries. So keep that in mind With uh, as you uh, go on your own journey through awareness and listening to any discussion... Of the, the panels, so and that's what maybe separates my point of view from what we've just talked about uh, a little bit. I, I believe that that its urgency that, and the magnitude of the problem dictates you know, a little bit of a quicker response. But, but the, but the so.
1: point is that y- you definitely have the position that you know cows are clearly creating an issue in terms of emissions, okay, and that, that we're, no, but 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 in terms of both carbon dioxide and methane, and that that is a, a, a significant contributing factor. Um, and then, but I think what's on the other side Is they're saying, well, there's certain kinds of farming That actually can sequester carbon So that's sort of where we are, but we'll come back I want to ask Corinne, who's our Nutritionist on the panel, if she Thinks there's a difference, you know, are all cows Created equal, if we're just still talking about cows Yeah,
5: well, I mean To, to the points that were made, I, I love The idea of regenerationism, if that's The correct term Regenitarian. Regenitarianism, mm-hmm. okay <laughs> And so humans are omnivores And Some people thrive with meat in their diet, and some thrive on a plant-based diet. And that depends entirely on the individual's biochemistry, which we all come to this earth with with, uh, very varying biochemistries. So with that said, I completely um, am in the camp, and I think we all are, that no one should be looking at that 99% of beef that is factory farmed because it's a poisonous entity, the uh, components of which are assimilated easily into the human ecosystem, so these these toxins are they 're fat soluble they 're readily absorbed they 're readily stored, and they 're very poorly mobilized and dealt with, detoxified, and excreted so we 've got this sum total of toxicity from from uh, factory farmed meat. Uh, we have an antibiotic resistance issue, and we have um, you know, just a whole plethora of things that are in the meat and then the human adjusts the meat. And there's a concept called xenohormesis. And what that means is that xeno in Greek means stranger. It is the strange altered signaling that's happening in the, that animal's flesh that then has crosstalk with the human entity when we eat it. So yes, there's, there's plenty wrong with, with that 99%. But with the 1%, if we're looking at a... Um, added from a nutritional standpoint, what does that have to offer us? It has to offer us a really clean source of protein and types of nutrients that are hard to uh, mimic, like heme iron, which is found only in meat and is much more readily absorbed and bioavailable and uh, dealt with by the body. So iron and zinc and B12 and other B vitamins. And grass-fed beef is even high in antioxidants like glutathione and superoxide dismutase, the, the mother of all antioxidants in our systems that are um, just vitally important for detoxification. So there's a lot good about it from a nutritional standpoint, in my opinion. I want to follow up, you mentioned briefly,
1: the issue of antibiotic resistance. And I want to make sure that everyone really understands what we mean when we say antibiotic resistance, what the definition is, and what that has
5: to do with, you know, uh, Feedlot farming, CAFO farming. Right. So, an antibiotic resistance is, is the ability of bacteria to actually morph into a form, and by, it's by various means that bacteria does this, it can morph into a form that is impervious to the drug that was designed to kill it. So, that's a resistant bacteria, it's a super bug. And so, what happens is that between 70 and 80 percent of our antibiotics in America are fed to factory animals, because it fattens them quickly, so these these antibiotics are obesogenic, they fatten these animals very quickly, and they're needed because these cows are, are, and, and animals are in you know, terribly crowded conditions, and they would not be quote-unquote healthy without them. And so the the resistant bacteria, and I'm talking about things that we've all heard about, we've, it's in the news, E. coli 0157, we hear about that in Jack-in-the-box hamburgers, and MRSA, methicillin, resistant staph aureus, and salmonella, and C. difficile. All these very virulent strains are then in the guts of those cows and animals. They pass into the, um, into the water supply. They pass into, and then they are, uh, end up in, in the human, unfortunately. They're also on the meat. They're on the meat, and they're in the meat. So it's through the excrement of the animal, and it's also right on the meat of the animal when the animal is slaughtered, unfortunately. And so the the, uh, latest year that I could find a um, reference for, we had 2 million cases in 2011 of resistant uh, bacteria infections causing 23,000 plus deaths. And we know that number is rising dramatically. I think it's, you know, it's predict, predicted to rise by something like 67% over the next uh, 15 years or so.
1: So basically we have slum-like conditions in which the animals live. And then we sort of regularly feed them antibiotics, which creates this perfect you know, environment for creating whatever bug or bacteria will result um, that you know, is, is resistant to that. And then that's transferred in any number of ways to humans. Excuse me. Um, and now this has become a bigger and bigger problem. And, you know, we, do we have anything in the pipeline, you know, in terms of medicines
5: out there uh, to respond to this? Well, the thing is that bacteria have this ability and there's there's these very you know numerous means that they have to to resist um, antibiotics. And so we can try to keep creating drugs, but those drugs will continue to be ineffective over time. And what I didn't say, and everyone on this panel knows, is that that excrement that's stored in lagoons is then used as fertilizer on our crops, and that's why we have uh, these resistant bacterial infections that are found in in spinach and lettuce and that kind of thing. So, what can we do? Well, you know, there has been um, some research on using natural antimicrobials, things like um, oil of oregano and thyme oil, and Coconut oil, which is a source of a very potent uh, antibiotic, monolaurin. So there have been some studies using those to reduce the amount of, of antibiotics need, needed in animal feed. But it's not really an answer because we, we're still in that same model, right? So it's not that we want to replace it now with a natural product. really because of the way they live. Right. So we want to take a, a close look at the things that, that we were talking about earlier, I think.
1: Anybody else on the antibiotic resistance? Anybody hungry for a drive-through burger right now? <laughs> so I was like, sure, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Al, you can ask a question.
2: <laughs> uh, well, I want to tie in. I'd like to ask you a question that might tie in. I'm sure, I, I believe everybody here would be interested in this. It would tie in the discussion, thank you, about uh, the, the, the differences in, or, the, or the, what we're seeing in terms of uh, the benefits, the health benefits of grass-fed livestock. And so the question to me, or to you, would be, um, do you see a difference then in, I mean, everyone should be aware of the inflammatory stressors that are around us, whether it's from the environment or from the food you eat uh, or the stress you create yeah, on, your, on yourself. But basically, um, so how does grass-fed beef then uh, do away with or compare to uh, uh, not only grain-fed, but then plants in terms of those inflammatory stressors, just to name a few. So you're aware of them. Say, for instance, the increased uh, serum level of homocysteine that comes from methionine, which is much greater in concentration in animal products than it is in plant than it is in plants. Uh, C-reactive protein, um, you know, endotoxins for uh, uh and uh, you know just just a, a rash of uh, you know inflammatory stressors that 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 create that situation where where' meat whether it 's beef or uh, fish or chicken uh, increase your risk of contracting one of the four leading causes of death and disease in the Western uh, civilization, as well as the five leading causes of cancer, which has now been pretty well documented. So how does that compare, the grass-fed beef. Well, yeah, Richard, I
5: agree. It, it, all of these diseases of Western man, these complex chronic diseases, are based on inflammation. Right? And so animal proteins are more inflammatory and more acidifying, which is another you know, underlying mechanism of, of disease promotion. However, uh, a grass-fed piece of uh, flesh does contain a, a really healthy ratio of anti-inflammatory potential because the inflammatory potential in our cells is, is one of the greatest... Uh, uh, components there is the ratio of omega-6, the inflammatory fatty acids, to omega-3. And so um, a piece of grass-fed beef, the, um, that ratio is 1.5 to 1. And that's the ratio, like the perfect ratio would be about 1 to 1. We look now and we, when we examine people's cells, and I do this with most of my clients, I'm looking at, at those ratios in their cells. And so we want that to be less than 4 to 1. Uh, grass-fed beef is 1.5 to 1, whereas grain-fed beef is about 7.5 to 1. And the average American is about 20 to 1 in highly inflammatory potential versus those anti inflammatory So, Richard, I agree with you, but I think it's a function of the amount of that that we're eating that we can balance with other components.
4: Yeah, and I, you know, I think that's always the answer. I mean, it's just like I'm a vegan. It's like, oh, you're eating too much soy. No, it's terrible because of the blah, blah, blah. I disrupting... Seminizing, blah, blah, blah. And it's just like, look, you don't have to eat that much soy as a vegan and as an omnivore, you don't have to eat that much meat. Like, just lower it way down and just eat bits. It's all about the dose, right? And like, and get, I mean, just like be regenitarian about it and like eat like much less and make sure it comes from a correctly raised animal and yeah, don't overdo it.
1: Leslie I know you wanted to say
6: something well I was just gonna say on the omega-3 versus omega-6 there are an insane amount of vegetables and um, seeds out there that you can also get these same omega-3s with balance with the sixes I'll just name a few if you want to take notes flax seeds chia seeds hemp seeds mustard oil seaweed beans winter squash leafy greens cabbage family berries wild rice herbs and spices mangoes I will go on forever Hope you take shorthand yeah, yeah. <laughs> the point is is that there's nothing that an animal can give us that a vegetable can't. Yeah, but Leslie...
1: Oh, okay.
6: <laughs> yeah. All right.
5: So, you know what? That's a nomenclature issue that I really do have a problem with because the fact is that those plants and, and only animal foods have the actual omega-3 fats. The plants have the precursor fat alpha-linolenic acid, right? And so, yes, there's plenty of ALA in those um, foods that were just mentioned, but the human does not convert very much ALA to EPA and DHA. It's only about 5% of those precursors that are converted, whereas in a ruminant stomach, that ruminant takes takes the ALA from the grass and makes really beautiful levels of EPA and DHA. We need the DHA for our brains and our mood and... Uh, so many other things, and the EPA anti-inflammatory.
6: Well, as we discussed earlier, I am
5: I'm d- donating my blood. To I
6: know,
1: you know we're going to do that. We're going to look at it. I know I, I, there will to be. Follow out. us on our blog later in for the answer to that. this question. <laughs> and if you're in a uh, university student, I think you just got one uh, credit hour for the last, the first half of the panel. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, some some science. <laughs> um, yeah, please. Because it's kind of doom and gloom here, right? I mean, this is this is serious stuff, and um, and it's it's kind of overwhelming and pretty depressing, and so I just want to offer some hope around the antibiotics issue, which is just in the last two years, um, and I won't take, Friends of the Earth won't take certainly all the credit, but just in the last two years, I've been with Friends of the Earth for two years, we've been doing a lot of campaigning around antibiotics with a number of other groups, and we've been able to get a lot of restaurants um, to make um, commitments to shift their policies away from supporting routine use of antibiotics in animals to basically telling their suppliers, it's not okay, our customers don't want this. This, is a, this awesome. is a public health crisis, and we need to do something about it. So just in the last two years, um, we've seen uh, companies like McDonald's, Subway, um, Papa John's. We just did a, a campaign, a very short-lived campaign, but we may be coming back. in and out Burger, um, a fairly local joint, has um, has announced a couple months ago that they were going to switch um, and stop uh, using meat that was raised with routine antibiotics. So we're making progress because we've been stalled for 40 years in Washington because the meat industry has a tremendous amount of power, and they're not, they're not, def- they're not protecting our public health, obviously, in Washington, right? And so we have to do it in the, in the marketplace. And all of you, what I want to say is... Um, yeah. Um, so what I want to say is that all of you actually have a role to play because you go and wherever you eat wherever you eat whatever restaurants you eat at if you do eat at fast food restaurants um, go onto their websites go onto their Facebook pages let them know make phone calls let them know that you don't want meat raised with routine antibiotics Um, and it's okay to treat animals when they're sick Um, we support that but it's not okay to feed them daily doses of antibiotics and and they are listening and the more you step up we need Jack in the Box we're in San Diego Um, we need lots more fast food restaurants to step up Um, because they really are the big, they're the big buyers of the meat uh, that a lot of folks are consuming. So we spent a fair amount of
1: time talking about cow, one type of cow versus another, and also really discussing the intricacies of a meat-based diet. But I know Leslie here's chomping at the bit to talk a little bit more about a plant-based diet. So tell us a little bit about your understanding in terms of. Your capacity to get all of your nutrients in a plant-based diet?
6: Sure. Vegetables um, is my life. That's what I do. That's what I talk about. That's our hashtag. That's, That's my hashtag. My hashtag. My hashtag. <laughs> it should be. It should be, right? <laughs> it's a good one. Um, so I, I'm Leslie, again, a uh, vegan chef. I made the choice at eight years old to stop eating meat. Uh, for me, it was a lifestyle and moral decision I I personally don't see the difference between a dog a cat a cow a pig a chicken etc 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 but that is not all about what I talk about what I talk about and what I have the awesome job of doing is making vegetables fun and make vegetables really good and when I say vegetables I really mean all plants and so I'm sort of the person on the other side of this hopefully the solution to getting people excited about eating more plant-based foods, whether that mean eliminating them completely, whether that mean eliminating them 50%, whatever it is, wherever you are that you're comfortable with. I talk about how everybody is on their own food journey, and the biggest thing that we have to do in this world is respect where other people are in their own lives, because it really is a decision, a personal decision for everyone to make. With that being said, I do believe that once you know, you can't unknow. Once you see, you can't unsee. So it's really about educating yourself on your body and how this thing works. You know, luckily I have a science ed- entertaining background, if you guys remember that. And I have a knack and fun ability to take really complicated things and break them down so that they're simple and understandable. And one of those things is how your body works. And in general... Very generally speaking, the American diet does not have nearly enough nutrients in it. You cannot sustain a diet strictly... Can we put up the slide with the 66% uh, pie sure. chart? You cannot sustain a diet strictly on animal proteins, but you can sustain a diet strictly on plants. So it's finding that balance that's going to work for you in your life in every day. I also talk a lot about... Um, this is the standard American diet. Yeah, there it is. It's beautiful, isn't it? <laughs> well, hopefully that, little, that big giant piece of pie is going to start getting a little bit smaller. Uh, but it's really about getting people excited and about what they're uh, putting in their bodies is what i'm trying to say um yeah so obviously i'm a friend of the cow i don't eat the cow <laughs>
1: <laughs> so on that note we're gonna transfer to our next subject which is animal welfare and talk to some other friends of the cow um let's see how about you aaron why don't you tell us a little bit about the work that you do in terms of your work um Vis-a-vis CAFOs, CAFOs, CAFO, CAFO? Yeah, oh, so, both.
7: Uh, so, yeah, here we get, here, here's our, our wonderful image. Uh, um, actually, I'm going to focus on the image on the left here, our, our, our poultry industry. We've talked a lot about beef, but in terms of animal suffering, uh, there's just nothing that compares to what's going on in the poultry industry anywhere else. Uh, I th- I'm assuming that uh, it's not necessarily useful to go through the, the gruesome details here, but one of the, what, I'll, what I'll share is a, is a story, and I think stories are really important here. I think one of the things we really need to do is tell a different story about food. But the story I want to begin with is uh, I worked with Jonathan Safran Foer in his book Eating Animals, and uh, you know during the period it was being written, of course nobody knew anything about it except the title. I would tell people, oh, I'm working on this book, Eating Animals. What it was really telling to me is whether or not the person knew me at all, they assumed by the title that it was going to be a critique that it was going to be talking about problems. But there's nothing in saying eating animals that should inherently imply that, unless we know that things are really messed up. I think we do know that things are really messed up. So I'm not going to go into the details about how things are messed up, but I am going to talk about one way we can get out of it, uh, which is through kind of consumer action and ultimately consumer action that... Leads to the institutional decision-making that's different. That way we can make a big difference. It's not in our own lives, but the institutions we're a part of. Uh, and with, with poultry, there's a tremendous variation. Uh, we've done a project called buyingpoultry.com, and what it does is take every poultry product out there and ranks them into seven categories of welfare. And we include plant-based products in this. And you can go on there actually look at the products you're consuming and get a sense where they rank and see the different price points in your area ultimately. Um, for doing this, and start to figure out what you want to do for yourself. But after you do that, that's like the simple Rank part. Rank them how?
1: It. Pardon? Rank them how? Yeah.
7: Well, here we're focusing on welfare. Okay. Yeah. So, so buying dot is going to help you understand the welfare, and there's other things to think about uh, there. But you know, understanding, you know, are you are you comfortable if um, if the animal is treated well itself, but its parents are horribly abused? Big problem in the poultry industry. We've got a lot of higher welfare poultry where the actual chicken or laying hen uh, is treated fairly well, but it's parents and grandparents and the whole system that produces it is, uh, you know, antibiotics. So, for example, when I buy antibiotic-free chicken in the store... That antibiotic-free chicken comes from a system which requires antibiotics. Because even though it's not being given to that bird I'm eating, it's being given to its parents and grandparents and great-grandparents and all up the line. You have to transition to what we call heritage-type uh, systems or innovations on the tradition of heritage farming to get there. Well, it, there's always hybrid, but hybridization is in some ways the, the problem. That is not simply crossing two animals. That, that's fine. That's been done forever. But the system we have now is we're talking about twenty different lines, fifteen to twenty different lines being crossed like a cocktail to produce it. I'll give an analogy to kind of capture this and then I'll I'll stop there. But this is so this is so crucial. So the way I've been thinking about it is the, the traditional way we bred turkey was more like beer. And the current hybridized turkeys are more like cocktails. Here's what I mean. If I order a beer and I drink it, it's going to taste the same as the beer in the keg. You know, like parent, like child. But there's no, like, Manhattan in the back room, right? The Manhattan has to be mixed up, and then I get the drink, right? And that's what poultry farming is like today. Except, if anyone knows where cocktails began, this is the part of the analogy I love. Cocktails began during Prohibition because the quality of alcohol was so bad, you had to mix it up to make it taste decent. And that's a great analogy to what we've done. We've got these, the hybridized birds that we're talking about in the big industry that are producing the 99% of birds. The ones that are breeding, they don't have to look good or survive or do anything except be able to transmit their genes. And the conditions there are really awful. So, yeah, here's, here's the graphic that tells the story. This is what we need to change. We need to change it for welfare. We need to change it for a lot of other reasons. Uh, and when you go through that personal decision, then connect with an institution. And help an institution make that transition.
1: Jack, it sounds like the uh, audience is screaming to hear from you. This question is... I, well, I'd like uh, they, like they want just like to, to know-
7: comment real oh, quickly here. Yeah. Is that in the poultry industry,
0: the genetic templates for the millions and millions of birds fit in your hand. Um, and that's why the, as a commodity, often the prices go up and down. Is One little imbalance in their environment kills them. Yeah completely off, and the antibiotic resistance, they live in such conditions where there's no natural redundancy in their environment with constant inflammation, needing intervention from antibiotics just to stay alive, and then it's packed up in some polypropylene packaging and delivered to your grocery store, and you buy it, and you buy it without any connection to it, and we have to do a much better job. It doesn't matter if you're a vegan, vegetarian, or omnivore, to be more connected culturally as a country where our food comes from you need to get as close to the source as you can so buying something that is that's coming a from a su- sub-equatorial country where you don't know what condition the person raising that strawberry or chicken or anything is not okay and in order to start to make these changes and eat less the waste of all food in this country is grotesque
1: so the question was, how do you as a farmer balance competing concerns for animal welfare, the environment, and sustainability? So you've actually started to answer that. This, You know this farm, actually, I think. Yeah. No, I mean, this is,
0: this is one project right here. We don't live in a climate with a lot of rainfall. We don't have indigenous herbaceous um, plant life here. So these sheep actually live in a citrus grove that's watered, and they eat the grasses that are there. That's our answer to uh, grass-fed um, lamb here. And that's part of the bio- biodynamics of a 300-acre crop farm.
1: But tell me, I've heard you talk before about you as a rancher. Your take on how ranchers feel about the animals that they help grow and ultimately harvest. Tell me yeah. your take on on are, do you, do you care are, about the welfare of your yeah, animals? no, we we, we, we definitely
0: care. Okay. I mean, any I don't know any small farmer that doesn't care about the welfare and that else also not an environmentalist as well. You, in order to um, to raise your animals in a pasture based you and without intervention from antibiotics and to give them a quality of life, you have to give them that space. You have to give them that health, uh, in order to do, to do so. Um, we, we care about all animals and we recognize we don't humanize them. Um, in that, in that aspect, um, they grow to the maximum of their creation and they're harvested. Um, and, uh, you know, as I uh, sometimes candidly say, you know, I send them to new homes.
1: Do you think there's a difference then in the way that you raise your animals, or the people you teach on how to raise your how to raise animals, and what we understand happens at the KFÖ factory farms? that we've I mean, seen there's not even of.
0: any comparison. Um, our template is that you know all everything deserves a quality of life and a quality of death. So we don't send them to a slaughterhouse. We wouldn't work so hard to give something a great life, um, raise it without any intervention, then throw it in a box and drive it down the road and shove it through something that smells like a public swimming pool and then bring it out the other side and say, look, this is a fantastic product. I want, it. I want you to eat this. Um, you know, They are harvested right there on the farm.
1: Let's, let's, let's hear from Kara a little bit about uh, Kara, excuse me, about her understanding and knowledge of slaughterhouses? Because you've mentioned slaughterhouses, even as someone who raises their animals in the best way that you know, you oppose the
8: slaughterhouse. What's your experience with slaughterhouses? So I've spent the last six years or so spending time in small slaughterhouses. So the scale of these operations is, you know, it's usually me and one or two or three butchers on the kill floor. And they're slaughtering sometimes just for local farmers, sometimes uh, some of it's been sold in advance, Sometimes there's a state inspector or a USDA inspector there, so it's really a, a range of different kinds of animals, a range of different kinds of meat um, and i've seen i've seen all kinds of things happening I think that Part of the perspective that I bring is to say, whatever we're trying to do to improve our food systems, we always have to widen our scope. So redefining sustainability is a part of it. Um, adding, when we, Even when we're talking about animal welfare, to make sure that we're not just talking about animal welfare, but we're talking about human welfare, and we're talking about the people who are working in the slaughterhouses, the people who are raising the animals, the people who are doing, doing all parts of this work. Um that we're we're talking about what are the best possible standards and what's the best kind of meat that we can produce and also how can we create food that's accessible and that's affordable to everyone and to people who are food insecure, who are our neighbors. Um so to always always be broadening the scope. And I think that slaughterhouses are often left out. Slaughterhouses and people, other people are often left out of the conversation. So when we focus on our own choices and our own individual health um, and the choices that we make and the things we put but in our mouths, a lot of other people in a lot of parts of the picture get left out. Absolutely. Thank you for that.
1: <laughs> Jack is our lone farmer rancher representative here on the panel. You are a bit outnumbered. Um, some of us are hobbyist farmers, I think. That's as, as, as much as we can say. What about that? What about this idea that you know, the, the better part of the conversation is from the consumer perspective and not from the producer What do you want to stand here and say on behalf of your fellow farmers?
0: Uh, we need to, as a, a culture, get as I said earlier, closer to the source um, and not uh, and just like farmers markets, the government isn 't saying to um, go to farmers markets they 're consumer driven and in order for farmers to grow products, whether it 's um, livestock or poultry or local things, you as consumers have to buy it, going to you know the health food store and buying from them isn't going to solve our food problems. It's um, That is not really a local template and if you look at other cultures that are successfully managing um food even in um on the lower economic and um uh, less advantaged they do a much better job than we do um simply because they're sourcing locally and eating seasonally um everyone always you know if you say the word organic anymore people are like oh it's so expensive but if you're eating within the season you you know that makes a difference you're not uh, if you have to have uh, blueberries all year round and they're coming from South America, you're going to be paying more because they've traveled 6,000 miles. It's, you know, if you need your blueberries, you save them, preserve them somehow, or strawberries, or anything. That's part of what we should do as a community, um, and food is community. And, right. and we, to build those stronger communities and to solve a lot of these problems, And reduce our carbon footprint, and have a bigger stewardship for the earth and all living things. We need to start there, and we need to stop wasting so much. And uh, the you know I think uh, us as omnivores are always getting a bad rap. The there's so many situational ethics in food where you uh, go in there and you're buying something that is in all of this packaging. It may be a vegan product, Um, but those factory foods are bad for the planet. Period. And they're not good for you. The, um, as nutritionists, you know, the processed food, whether, uh, lots of vegetarian foods now that they have options, the fiber is removed. Anytime food stays, in, the longer it stays in your body, it, whether it's organic or not, causes inflammation. And if the fiber has been removed, you're not processing it correctly. Stop eating processed foods. That's a huge problem. And the disadvantaged and um, food deserts in many of our cities, that's a big problem is only processed foods.
1: You raise a good point, which is that, you know, we, we have been focusing, obviously, this is a panel at meat, and the Target is on meat today, and we've been talking a lot about emissions and um sort of the health aspects, but we can we can raise issues with respect to a, a number of vegetable or plant products as well. I mean, look, I, I am vegan as well. You know, if many of us up here are. Look at what we're doing in terms of, I love quinoa and almonds, okay? These are two crops that are really maybe not so sustainable. Um, and look what's happened in the community where quinoa is grown and raised. The people who grow it, it's part of their heritage. They can no longer afford to eat it because people like me and the rest of us who are choosing that, that is our law of unintended source.
0: consequences you know
1: where we're affecting their lives and and is that impact on their life any less significant and i think that's that's very important for us to consider i think you wanted to add something too aaron well you
7: know i think it's it's really important to pay attention to this complexity at certain moments but but it also is important to remember we've got some big macro trends which is we can talk about animal products as more resource intensive and leaving a bigger uh, footprint but uh, the, the real thing i wanted to kind of suggest is a lot of these nuances can't really be worked out in an individual's life it's too complex and that's why I want to kind of emphasize like we shouldn't always focus on the complexity but at the institutional level at your university at your church at your synagogue you can have a conversation that takes a couple years and you can make a decision that takes five years to implement, but that can change the world. And you can be radical without having to suffer all the consequences because if an institution can reach out to somebody like Jack and say, Jack, how many years would it take you if I wanted to get you know this amount? And what would you need to do that? And you could have a conversation with this guy about how to do that, and it would take longer. But you can build chains that produce the kind of things that uh, we feel good about. And that process also will change the way people Look at food. Because as you start to interact with the farmers, as you realize the real cost of getting what you want, um, what I think consumers think is that animal welfare can be pretty inexpensive. Um, And and it's not, people tell you that it is, our our marketers. Um, It's going to cost more. And we really have to kind of recognize there's no reason... Animal life was supposed to be cheap. This is a luxury item. It's a prestige item. It's something that's always had a lot of status. Um, And it's okay if it's expensive. So when people start to look at it and they say, well, I want my chicken to run free. I want its parents to run free. Well, that's $12 a pound. It's shocking, but only shocking because of the current moment. Historically, that would be like, oh, yeah, that's expensive. That's what it costs. It's a big deal to kill an animal. That's That's not an everyday event. And with institutions, almost everything is possible.
0: And, and it's not using as a, you know, uh, we're not using the whole chicken. We're buying chicken breasts or we're buying the parts that we like. And you know, I think one of the few things that we do import to China is chicken feet You know, they, they're processed and sent to China because that's part of the a staple of uh, breakfast for them. The, you know, but those make great soups. Um, it's a, the, there's, and again, the feet or the beak wasn't any less valuable to the chicken. Right. Just like on a beef. You know, its tail or neck bones or shoulder isn't any less valuable to that um, beef than its uh, tri-tip or uh, prime cuts were. And we need to um, respect that and understand that. And that's uh, that's very wasteful when we only
7: want to eat... Finding ways to use at, whole animals. Exactly. Exactly. Not
1: only do we eat three times more meat than we should, uh, the better average in the world is twice a week. We Americans have it at least once a day, and I think probably more... But we also throw out more food, waste more food than anywhere else in the world. And quite frankly, that's also a travesty. It, it mattered to that
3: cow or chicken or pig. But I know you wanted to say something. Yeah, I do, because you, you were talking about institutions. And I, I just think it's really important for us to understand and recognize that um, that we are functioning a lot of times the, the choices that you have or the choices that people make, what you can afford is very much driven by the policies in Washington, right? The policies that are in place that are supporting the factory farms and that are not supporting the farmers like you. We have 1% of the acreage in this country to, um, in organic right now and that's partly because all of the subsidies are going to chemical intensive agriculture, not to regenerative agriculture. And so if we're going to change this um, and then you know in terms of institutions, a lot of of the institutions are what they're serving. If their public institutions are driven by the dietary guidelines, which you know, this year for the first time ever, we had the opportunity to get less meat um, as a, a main recommendation in the dietary guidelines. And a lot of us worked really hard to, to and advocated to, to get that recommendation in there. And we had a unanimous scientific, pa- scientific advisory panel that, that told USDA and HHS. This is, this is the science. It's better for health. It's better for the environment. We need to reduce our meat consumption in this country. And because of the meat lobby and the incredible power of that meat lobby, that recommendation was watered down. We still got some good things in the dietary guidelines. But those guidelines influence our institutions, where you eat. And 50% of our food budget, practically, is spent outside of the home. And so if we're going to change this issue, we have to change the policies and we have to change the institutions. And, and yeah, everyone here who is, interacts with institutions can really help, help move that. But everyone needs to...
7: Help tell the story of your institution. I mean, one of the powerful things about this is now your food is representing your identity instead of being like a small side interest. And, you know, at at universities, at churches, at synagogues, at institutions, which are connected to our identity in this way, this is really powerful because we need to tell a different story. It can't just be these, these, uh, you know, just kind of understanding technical decisions and making them. We have to want to have a way of connecting. We have to want to have a kind of understanding of who we are in the world. Do we want to, you know, live off eating animals? This is a serious ethical question question. And I think it's okay to recognize, like, a lot of, uh, there's, there's so much taboo around talking about vegetarianism and veganism and this stuff. There's nervousness around it. But th- there's just different stories people are telling about who they are and different kind of values. And we can tell those different stories and be in an argument and a discussion, but we definitely need a different story. We can't <laughs> keep thinking of food as this inexpensive thing. We kind of get in the background that it's not important to who we are. This just has to change.
1: I I want to say, I think that that's a very important point, is that, you know, internationally there was a a study a few years ago that ranked us number one in affordability of food, and our ranking was somewhere between 30 and 60, do you remember the number, in terms of healthfulness of our food. Our food is cheap because it's heavily subsidized, but what we subsidize isn't really the best food. We subsidize that big 66% of the pie chart, which is processed food, and we subsidize, you know, food that that somebody's making a lot of money off of, not the one that's good for you, that's grown by farmers like Jack you know, that um, really is the food we should be subsidizing. So that's a big problem, and that's a policy issue, and, you know, we should all use our voice to talk about that to the people in our communities, the leaders of our communities, of our country, to make sure that they're, you know, mindful of, of that distortion in, in our system. So I'm sorry, go ahead.
2: So quickly, no, 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 that's good. I just wanted to <coughs> basically echo what we just heard here uh, for everyone in the audience, because uh, what I've seen, I mean, I've been speaking about... Uh, food choice change for 40 years now. I don't want to give away my age, but it was when I, it was, when I was in graduate school. And uh, I haven't seen uh, so much uh, potential as I've, for, for positive change in the world, internationally, wherever I speak, uh, than I have in the last 12 to 24 months. Mm-hmm. So I do want to say the doors have been open, and a lot of this is because of the word sustainable. I mean, I'm speaking very much at a number of institutions. We don't want to leave out any institution that you that any of you can influence, because we're talking about academic institutions, businesses, NGOs, you're talking about policymakers, uh, and basically, uh, you, have, you have a voice and they need to hear it. So I just wanted to echo this, because uh, I'm, I'm seeing it out, out in the trenches, basically, and, uh, and so they need your voice, they need to be, you need to be heard, and in order for, the, in the next five years, you know, the, the US Dietary Guidelines is, is, uh, is placed every five years, you better believe that the 21 to 23 people on the advisory committee would want to hear your voice uh, after they've given the recommendations because uh, it'll come up again and we'll see some great changes if everybody gets on board and moves that critical mass to the right place.
3: Yeah, I have to just say one thing. So five years ago, the dietary guideline recommendations came out. I think there were 1,800 comments. And this year, the dietary guidelines came out. There were 30,000 comments. 22,000 of them? Yeah.
2: Mostly because it was... yeah, mostly because of the uh, the recommendations by the advisory. Right. Well, committee. they came I mean,
3: out, and then there were several mm-hmm. organizations: Friends of the Earth, My Plate, My Planet, mm-hmm. um, Food Democracy Now. Several organizations went out to their bases. A lot of the in, the, the animal welfare groups to support the recommendations, mm-hmm. and we got 22,000, and that blew up. Like the USDA and 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 HHS were like, "Whoa, this is like nobody ever pays attention," and what we need. Five years from now, we need 2.2 million yeah, people say, to weigh in on this and let our government know that it's time for change. Yeah, and, and it change. wants to say something? Sorry.
4: No. You... Oh, yeah, I just you know also wanted to observe that um, I think the the movements are on fire. You know, the vegan movement's on fire. Also, the regenerative permaculture movement's on fire. And I think they're both answers to our sustainability problem. And I think the contribution each movement can make to each other. You know, they like to go at it, right? I mean, it's, you know, that's you. the thing. And I think mm. it's like, you know, look, we have a much bigger machine that's eating us for lunch. And I think that the contribution of the <laughs> vegan movement to our permaculture regenerative friends is to be disciplined about it. You know, you know, your burger looks the same when it's degenerate burger versus, you know, the correct burger. And you've got to say no, you know. And vice versa, the, you know, the permaculture regenerative are saying, dude, stop buying, you know, processed soy from conventional, you know, farms. I mean, it's just destroying the earth. I mean, these neonicotinoid you know uh, insecticides that coat every seed. I mean, it's just ecosystem-wide catastrophe. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, so we just need to like really respect each other. The DIY, get closer to the farm, closer to the earth, and then be disciplined about it. Eat less meat and be make sure it's correct. You know, if you're going to choose that, and and then I think we you know these movements combining and mm-hmm. we have like such a you know the, yeah. you know coming together and just you know and we support everybody.
1: We, I, I, thank you for raising that, and I, I wanted to make the same point. You know, we agree more than we disagree on this stage, notwithstanding the way it might appear. The truth is that when we're divided, then really it's the agro industry who wins, and so far they've been winning. Now we are gaining traction, but we'll be much stronger together, as with any movement. And, you know, whether I choose or you choose personally to be vegan or you— you know, I am not going to mandate or dictate that choice on anyone else. Um, if I, if I don't dictate that to someone else, and I know that's merited me quote marks around vegan in front of my name, and that's okay but then I'm going to advocate for the kind of farming that is the most humane and is the most regenerative that I can, because there is a difference between that and CAFOs, and I think we do uh, this movement a disservice when we divide ourselves. Sorry, I know you wanted to
5: say something. Well, that's that's perfect, and what I wanted to say is when we think about broadening this conversation, which keeps getting broader and broader to to Kara's point and to Jack's and to Aaron's, I, I think... As a nutritionist, so a clinical nutritionist um, that works within nutrition organizations, we can't um, we can't not align with this whole community because something's missing if we try to heal human uh, human health with nutrition and transform health while not recognizing the vast impacts of the environmental movement. So I look forward to really joining hands with the environmental community, and the nutrition profession, because that's the only way that we really will make an impact on this world. All right, so that's that's a perfect segue to the fourth
1: section of today's talk, which is technology and whether technology may have some answers to some of the problems we've talked about today. I think historically many of us may not think in a very positive light about technology and its application to food, But maybe we have someone with us here who has a different idea about that. What do you have to say, Uma?
9: Well, thanks, Michelle. Uh, First of all, let me say that I can pretty safely say I'm probably the only one on stage here um, who had to deal with resuscitating of people with cardiac arrest on the table and bringing them back to life and letting them walk out of the hospital. And I've seen the direct impact as a cardiologist opening up these patients' vessels, the impact diet has on our diet. It is the single most uh, ignored or not talked about uh, event in science, medicine, or anything we can think of. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm a cardiologist, but I'm also the CEO and founder of Memphis Meats. So, because you're all sitting, I'm going to tell you, you won't fall off your chairs. What we're doing is we're growing pork, beef, and chicken directly from the animal cells. So, it's the same delicious meat that we grew up eating and loving, but it does not involve the process of growing a full animal and slaughtering an animal to get the meat and then throw away the things you don't need, like the skin, bones, and the hair. So uh, you know, at a very uh, simple level, we are excited that we can provide the world with the meat that we all love because we live in a meat-loving culture. So 90% of the people in the world, no matter what culture, country, region, love to eat meat. And having said that, we shouldn't be in a position where we have to choose between what we love to eat and, and all the problems we've been hearing uh, with the people on the panel. And we feel like there's a technological solution that could let us have the same delicious meat, but it's safer and better for all of us, but also the planet and the animals. And, you know, it's a concept that hasn't really been explored in the past. So it might sound different to uh, uh, any one of you hearing it. But if you think about what you're eating now, Um, There's very little that's natural about it, and a lot that's very much franken about it, because, you know, we've talked about KFOs and that's, I think everybody on this panel agrees that 99% of the meat that people are eating in the world, it's coming from practices that are going to leave a disaster for the people that follow us. And when we think about, this is not about any of us up here, right? It's about the planet we're going to leave behind for our children, and And if there is an opportunity to to innovate and provide healthier food, whether it's meat, plant-based innovations, or just a better way of uh, eating the traditional meat, why are we saying no to it? Why are we sitting still and not doing anything about it? So Aaron says you could make a a tremendous impact, almost like an explosion, just by an action that completely takes out the multinationals out of it. You start working with your churches. You start working with your synagogues. And just have them develop a policy that they'll only have food that's delicious, healthy, and sustainable. And what a conscious consumer can look at and say, yes, I know every ingredient that went into it. It's natural or it's plant-based. It's rich in vitamins, minerals, amino acids. And I know where it's coming from. And, hey, by the way, I can actually tour this place where they're making this meat. So... That's kind of where we are coming at this. Uh, we have an incredible team of culinary scientists and health experts who came together and said, we want to solve this problem. They've left their jobs, their careers, and said, we will solve it. Uh, no one's done it before. And there's, <laughs> there's a lot of academics that are you know talking about this for 10, 15 years. But someone had to go out there and say, we will do this. And, uh, you know, we're happy to be here, uh, glad we are at this panel, uh, happy to take questions.
1: I, I, you know, I know your, your product isn't yet at market, and right now it's particularly expensive. Um. <laughs>
5: so, yes. but actually, you know
1: what, that leads to a question that isn't exactly a tech question, but I think it really deserves to be asked and answered. It says, the classism in the panel is shocking. The people that can't afford grass-fed, free-range animals are being blamed for everything. Is that fair? Is that accurate? And does anyone have a response to that?
7: Yeah, I mean, this is you get that response every time you talk about these issues, and you know, I think it ultimately comes from a place of maybe discomfort with uh, you know the, the very kind of core facts. Um, the, the vegan diet is the diet of the poor. I mean, th- this is what people eat when they don't have resources. So this it, is not true. The, 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 that what we are saying here has that component. Now, what I totally want to affirm is we live in a racist, classist society, and that's reflected in the power structures, and you can see that here. You know, that's definitely true. But the notion that advocating for reduction in animal product consumption, that advocating for vegetarianism or veganism is a white, classist thing, just is just factually wrong. Historically, internationally, it's just something that I find... You're about grass-fed beef? Yeah, this is... The grass-fed beef is right, is,
4: but is right I, here specifically. What if the
1: subsidies went to this kind yeah. of beef instead of the other? But go ahead. Yeah.
4: Here, look, okay, you want to have a dozen eggs, right? I mean, you can have You know, here, you can have $2 a dozen eggs. Here's your chicken in your backyard. There's 12 of them in a cage, right? Oh, I can't, you know, I can't spend two more bucks, and they're running around. It's like, no, I mean, like, that just doesn't cost... I mean, our our food is artificially cheap. It's a disaster. Like, we should be paying more. Like, no one would do that. Hey, I'm going to grow chicken. I'm going to have chickens in my backyard. Well, it'll be really efficient if I stack them up in little cages and put them in there and just, you know, don't let them move. And then it'll be $2. You know, look, spend, you know, people have having the money to, to do the right thing for them.
1: Yeah, but no, I think the point is valid. Mm. Hold on a second. The, the, mm. Look, we are talking about the fact that, that better quality meat is expensive and better quality food is more expensive. And yes, maybe our food is the cheapest, but, you know, there's a lot wrong in our current economic system. We can all agree. The question Absolutely. is still valid, which Absolutely. is the subsidies go to... Right, you know the wrong food right they don 't go to make the good food affordable, but go ahead not,
0: though, what it takes to raise one single beef mm-hmm. animal, and if you look at uh, we 're talking about its parents about the breeding stock, and that animal is a year when uh, she 's bred it 's an eleven month um, gestation, and then it 's another eighteen months in order till you can harvest that animal. What is the math on that lifespan just to get that one single animal started off the ground? It's a huge investment. It's, it should be expensive. It shouldn't be artificially cheap. You shouldn't be disconnected from the farmer and the cost of it. Uh, corn in this country is political. Um, and when you start to, if you want to raise it in uh, feedlots and through crop feeds, and which are, as we've all discussed, are environmentally disastrous, But government subsidized, which gives you cheaper beef, that's one thing. Eat less beef. I I tell, I eat less meat than probably most people in this room.
6: Well, I want to go ahead, please. I think yeah, go ahead. The question. Right. Oh my God, we sound like the nightly news now. Hold on a second. Yeah. The definition of good food is very subjective. Can I just tell you right now the price of potatoes in comparison to the price of beef? Yeah. There are plenty of foods out there, whole real foods that are completely affordable for everyone in this country.
9: I really understand. So wait, I, I want to make sure no, I, that I need to yeah, say something. So I, okay. think that this,
8: I think that the original question about classism on our panel and the conversation we're having here goes back to, to the comment that I made earlier. And I think that it's a very valid comment. That any time our focus is on personal choice and it's you as an individual who has to make a choice rather than a conversation about the systems that we're living in, that's, then, 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 what we're, then we are engaging. We're, we're perpetuating... A lot of the problems. I do believe that, and I think there are a lot of things that we all agree with. We all agree that there are problems in our food systems. Um, We all agree that change needs to happen. I think we all agree that that this really is an emergency that needs to happen quickly. Um, But I think that that goes back to the question. I mean, if we just look at a fairly narrow definition of sustainability, then we might conclude that doing grain feeding cows is better than grass feeding cows. But if we open the picture up, and if we open the picture up, and we're actually thinking about all of the people, and we're thinking about the land, and we're thinking about soil, we're thinking about animals, we're thinking about the people who are trying to earn a living wage, who are cutting these animals up for us, or pre-packaging up our tofu, or whatever it is, Um, then the conversation shifts, and I think that the conversation needs to shift in all the ways we're talking about, and it also needs to shift in that way. I, 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 you, you just took my closing statement, so I don't know what I'm going to yeah. say anymore. Go
1: ahead, whom I know you so, wanted to say something. Thank I you. I
9: really want to say something here because we brought up the issue of subsidies, then we brought up the issue of uh, good, affordable food for people who cannot afford it. So we feel like the innovation that we are uh, uh, right now in the middle of can, can answer some of these questions, but the subsidies are being directed to the wrong places. You know, if there is a, any subsidy in the world that has to go to something that is really destroying our planet rapidly... It's got to go into innovation in meat, meat production, and and the kind of innovation we are talking about. Because, you know, why would we not subsidize the process? You know, it took us $1,000 to make that meatball, right? So, but it it, it could have been $200,000 just two years prior. But we've been plummeting the cost of that. And what if we got subsidies to really innovate and say, now I want you to bring the cost of that meatball to 50 cents. We know we can do it. That's what we believe in. And we're going to raise funds for doing that. But what if we have subsidies from the government? We could get there so much faster. And why, why would we not do that? And the second question I want to answer is, you know, good, cheap food for everyone. We all know about McDonald's and the, the price of the burger not going up from a dollar for the last, what, 20 years? you you you're, you're still get a burger for a dollar. But what goes into that burger is totally different than what most people in this room can afford when they go to a restaurant and buy a high-end meat, meatball or a steak. Uh, but what if we can make the high, highest quality you know, Wagyu steak that goes into this burger at scales that... Uh, that could go into McDonald's, right? If we hit 69 cents a pound, we can do that. But if we use the process that we are talking about, everything we grow is actually highest quality meat. There's no scraps getting into the burger. There's nothing left over that can't get into a steak that's now processed into the processed foods. So some of the processed foods you're eating, if you ever see how they're made, you would never want to touch it, right? That's the travesty of not knowing what's happening in the food system. Plant or animal. Plant or animal, you know, (laughs) processed foods. So, But if you think about the way we are growing meat, and, you know, there will be a few other companies in the space, we are trying to grow the highest quality cells and let them grow into meat cells, whether it's from pork shoulder or a beef tenderloin. And we're trying to do that in a way that Would also preserve the cardiovascular health of the person who's eating it because we can affect the amount of saturated fats in there or the ratios of omega-3s or omega-6s in there. So this is the innovation that really needs to be subsidized. And you know, there's a lot of academics in this room, policymakers, and if you're tweeting out, I would say tweet out for the subsidies for innovation in meat. So thank you.
1: (laughs) Go ahead, David.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think, like, as a totally separate-related uh, issue is income inequality is, you know, a horrible problem. And people should absolutely be making enough money to afford conscious choice. And we have a travesty in this country that, you know, our low-wage employers are paying sub- these minimum wages that, you know, people can't make ends meet. They can't even, you know, they need food stamps and public assistance and housing programs. I mean, it's ridiculous, right? And, you know, there would be a revolution if we weren't basically as taxpayers subsidizing these low-wage employers, so we absolutely need to raise the minimum wage. Our company has donated a half million around to, to the movement, which is on fire. We just got it in California New York, up to 15 bucks. Absolutely. We need to be raising wage so people can afford better, more healthy food. But that said, right, Yeah. That, but that said, that said, people have a responsibility. There is an animal that made that meat, right? Just say, "Oh, I didn't want to spend another two bucks. Like okay, why don't you eat half as much meat and spend twice as much for it? Like that animal, you know, there's an animal that made that meat, and just because oh, I'm, you know, whatever, dude, there's a responsibility to that animal that is, gave its life, whatever. Or don't eat it.
7: Are you going to say is something also here?
4: better. Yeah, so I mean, I think
7: David. You know, said it so well. The issue we're talking about—the issue of classism around food and affordability—this has to do with other issues like the living, like the living wage. A number of years ago, I did work in uh, in India on these issues, and when uh, when we prepared to go there, so this was Animal Protection Group going to India, and what everybody was was worried about was doing animal protection work in India, where there's a you know a lot of human uh, human welfare problems, if you will, uh, could you know make rub. People wrong, and you know, it would look especially bad for white people coming from the United States, coming from this wealthy country, coming to a country with less resources, and promoting you know vegetarianism and so forth, and talking about these issues. And this constantly came up in settings like this with white people in America. When I got to India, year in India, not one person who was Indian, brought that up as an issue, that you shouldn't be here because we have other problems with poor people. That's, a con- that's something that, that we think. That these issues around class, I really think they, they are a defense mechanism from addressing what's going on here. And, and I've kind of gotten to the point where I feel like I need to say that because it's uncomfortable for people to recognize. But nobody here is advocating for anything. That Nobody's saying you should all eat grass-fed beef. We're saying if you're eating beef, this is the beef that doesn't destroy the planet and cause horrible animal suffering. Uh, and, and we, I think, really need to s- stop pretending that any of this discussion is, uh, you know, an attack on uh, poor people or anything like that uh, and, and just really focus on what yeah. can be done.
1: Wait, I think, hold on a second, Corinne wanted yeah. to say, and then, then you... Yeah. 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 Well, it also
5: strikes me, talking about poverty-stricken people, that where do we have the most concentrated... Um, areas of poverty is around factory farms and the devastation that happens to these folks in terms of respiratory illnesses and brain dysfunction and cognitive impairment mood issues and of course um, uh, resistant infections so we have to take a long view and I I like the point that that you made before about potatoes so it's education right people don't have to buy factory meat and if they can't afford meat, they could buy just a tiny bit and fill in with vegetables or, you know, look at other food choices.
1: It's, I'm so glad that you raised that point. I mean, that the people who grow the, the majority of the food, you know, plant food as well, uh, they really, they're not even seeing that food. You know, they live in communities where they are subjected to toxins that are really problematic in every way imaginable, and the food is being exported out to other communities, and they have fast food and other you know, options available to them, and that, that's a huge problem, and I know Richard's chomping at the bit over here. Go ahead. Well,
2: I'd like to bring it back around to, the, to, the, to the, the question of economics, and certainly there's some social uh, injustice occurring in the food systems internationally, and but... Uh, Let's bring it back around a little bit to the specific economics of it, whether, I mean, we're working with a few world hunger projects right now in sub-Saharan Africa, and we see it there, but especially if you're talking about the United States, there's a relative economic issue, and it can be solved, and we keep bringing meat back into the picture here, and I understand that, but in terms of relativity, the economics can be solved with just echoing what Aaron said and what Leslie said, which is um, the least expensive food, that you can purchase right now. There's a big argument in terms of whether it's organic or not, but still the least expensive food that's the healthiest for the environment and healthiest for you to, pr- to consume and healthiest for future generations without borrowing on their natural resources is, is a plant-based diet. It, and you just—if you need some information about that—you know—we'd we, be, we'd be happy to provide that for you. But uh, so I—I I would just uh, like to uh, to have everybody understand that that there's a relative economic value right now. And as we're working on subsidies and, and working on all these other issues, I think that everybody needs to be at least aware of the fact that the, you know, the most the highest percentage you can have in your diet with uh, whole plant-based foods uh, it would be uh, the best for your pocketbook as well.
1: Look, I, I think yeah, please. It's, there are a lot of things that we clearly agree up, uh, about here on this stage. Um, clearly, I think we all agree that our meat consumption is too high, in particular beef, and that, and that cows really do have a negative impact um, potentially on the environment, particularly with respect to methane and CO2. Um, but that's one issue to consider. We also understand that at least in certain regions, grasslands, not rainforests, uh, that cows can play a role or ruminants can play a role in regenerating soil that can actually do a better job of recapturing. So we're talking about issues with respect to climate change. But we do also have issues with respect to animal welfare. Eating no animals is clearly an option. (laughs) Uh, But then there's a difference between eating an animal that's raised in a pasture that has a good life until death versus an animal that's raised in a concentrated feedlot, where essentially this is an animal uh, concentration camp, okay? There's a difference in that quality of life. There's a difference we should consider the issue with respect to nutrition and, and, and what is the impact of different kinds of meat or no meat in terms of our diet we should consider our communities we should consider the people who work and toil in the production of of these foods um, plant and animal and we should, you know, look, as Leslie, I thought, so beautifully said earlier today, she's a vegan, but she respects that everyone is on their own path. All we can ask from everybody is that you take the information that we've provided, and we're happy to provide more. We can continue the conversation on Twitter, keep tweeting out meaty issues, and we'll, we'll all chime in and continue this. But each person has to figure out where they are on that path and how it is they can reduce their personal carbon footprint. We understand a Hummer is worse than a Prius, right? And we, and we understand that, you know, a cow is probably more impactful than a legume. Um, but the single most impactful thing that we can do, right, is have a child, right? Another human being, because we ultimately are the most impactful thing. Um, and, I'm obviously not advocating that no one have children, but the point is there are a lot of issues to consider, and it's for each of us to decide those which we think uh, matter most to us on our personal journey, and, and I wish you all the best of luck. Thank you for joining us. Thank you.